there's something I had wrong, gotten wrong in my thinking, my mind, in regards to Memorial Day. I had thought that Memorial Day started with, um, equa- I equated it with VE Day, which is victory in Europe after World War II when Germany was defeated. And, and I kind of confused that because that's May 8th, so it's near the same time. But I l- looked it up and checked, and actually, Memorial Day goes back further. It goes back to the Civil War. Um, and in fact, the, the year after the Civil War, after the incredible devastation that had taken place over the four or five years of the war between the North and the South, still the war that the most Americans have, have died in, um, they, they, they set up, they called it Decorations Day. And the idea is that you would go to the graves of the soldiers who had died in that year and decorate them and remember what they had done. And so I know when we think about whether it's World War II or one or even the Civil War, there's, there's a few very uh, pictures that they have from that time, photographs. And, and I know you look at those and it's, it's kind of like in that black and white faded color. And it seems so unreal, right? You might, you might kind of know some facts about it, but it's hard to think about um, that, that they were real people, you know, 18 year olds who, who gave their lives in that, in any of those wars. And it just sort of seems kind of distant because by God's grace, we have not had a war on American soil since the, the civil war. And, and even then we have not had anything as big. And so I got to thinking of that with, the story we're looking at today about Elijah. And I think Elijah, especially we can, we can forget that he was a real person, right? He did so many things we can't imagine ourselves doing the, the miracles that came out of his life and ministry. And especially what we talked about last week where Elijah prayed and God sent fire down, literal fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. And it, that's how God gave Elijah the victory. So it's one, one man, one prophet of the Lord versus 850 other prophets of, of Baal and Asherah. And, and so God gave him that victory. And we just see the rock solid faith of Elijah. And it's hard to remember that he was a real person, that he, he had the same struggles that we have. I know when I've kind of done this series before, I was most excited about that battle of Mount Carmel that we looked at last week where that Elijah won the great victory, right? That was, that was the thing I remember going into the series thinking, oh, I love to talk about that, how God, our God is greater, our God is stronger, higher than anything, any other thing that we, we know that he could, he could do. And I get it. I, I love preaching about that because I, I am convinced our God is real and he is greater. But I remember when I did this series another time, what struck me the most was not actually that, that passage. It was the one we did this one today where we see Elijah had his struggles. 
Elijah had times when his faith didn't look so rock solid. And in fact, we see Elijah's faith collapse in this passage. And I want to look at this and try to understand why. What what leads to his faith collapsing? And and how does God respond to his prophet, to his servant in this case? And how might that help us as we go forward? So after the battle, going back a little bit last week, God had announced before that he would send rain and end the drought. And, and so, as I said, God had sent fire to prove that Elijah was the true prophet. And Elijah then tells one of his servants to go look over the sea and you'll see a clouds coming and there's a, that happens like seven times. And finally they start to see clouds coming over the horizon and Elijah tells Ahab, okay, you're going to get your wish. Rain is coming. And so Ahab had waited till he could see. They were on top of a mountain, Mount Carmel. He could see the rain. And so Ahab then starts to head down in his chariot down to Jezreel, which is one of the, the cities that they had. By the way, I, I put a map as one of your inserts just because I'm going to refer to a lot of place names. So Mount Carmel doesn't show up on, on that map. But you could see where Jezreel, it was 17 miles away. So Elijah, or Ahab, I'm sorry, gets in his chariot. And as, as the rain is coming from the west, from, from over the ocean, uh, Ahab is starting to head eastward towards Jezreel. And that's one of his, his main cities. And it's where his wife Jezebel was. And it says, In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode to Jezreel. So this is right before our passage in 19. And I find this, I find this line interesting and, and a little bit mysterious. So, so uh, Ahab's in his chariot. It says, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, so Elijah, you know how they wore all those robes. He hitches up his robe and he starts running down the mountain. He runs down the mountain trail, across the plains, 17 straight miles. And God was, energy was upon him in, in some strange and mysterious way so that he was actually able to outrun Ahab's chariot. Um, last weekend, there's a group of us, we hiked up uh, one, one of the mountain, Spruce Mountain, the fire tower, and... and uh, some of the younger ones, uh, they just, you know, zipped up that mountain and, you know, I took my time. I made it, right? I had my hiking stick. I got up there and, and then even faster, they kind of came down the mountain. You know, they're just springing from thing to thing. And I'm like, I'm like coming down really slowly and, you know, but I made it. So, but I'm just picturing Ahab running down this, this mountain trail and, and all this. And, uh, so, so the, the point is, he gets there before Ahab, and then the next thing, it goes right into our passage. And it says, Jezebel, or Ahab, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So 
So I think Ahab, I mean, what would be his attitude in all of this? Well, he got rain, which is what he wanted. So the crops could grow again. So the animals could be fed. Um, he heard the people chanting, the Lord is God. And he, he, he was a part of seeing that the, the prophets of Baal had been rejected. So my guess is Ahab had this attitude of, okay, I guess the people have spoken. Let's, let's, get, let's forget about this Baal worship stuff. Let's, you know, he, he was probably about ready to make a policy change. And, you know, it would, that would be the right way to go. But he gets home to Jezebel, and her attitude's a little different. So she was the one who came from Phoenicia. She was the one who brought the, the Canaanite gods with her. And she was the one who had fostered the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And she was the one who had began putting to death the prophets of the Lord. And when she hears about this, she is not willing to concede defeat. She is, she's going to keep fighting all the way. And so she sends to Elijah this word. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like one of them, meaning her prophets, by this time tomorrow. You killed my prophets. I'm going to kill you. She still had his queen. She would have had enough power to enact her will. Um, and, and so Elijah gets the message, you are a dead man. Now, you're Elijah. You just saw God send fire from heaven. God has been providing for you and taking care of you for three years in miraculous ways. You know God has all this miraculous power. What kind of message would you send back? Like, you know, you could, it could be something simple. My God will protect me. You know, I, I don't fear you. I fear the Lord. Or... You know, whatever it would be, you'd think he would respond with some confidence. And it's verse 3 where you're kind of surprised. I'm surprised what happens. It says, he, Elijah, was afraid. So he'd been the strong solo guy against all those prophets and everything else. But now... This, this, for some reason, this did. He was afraid. He arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and, and left his servant there. So instead of reacting in confidence, Elijah is undone. He panics. Fear grips him. And he, he runs for his life. He flees. He flees the country. Here's where I put the map in. Beersheba is in the southern part of Judah. Remember that the kingdom of Israel had been split between northern, which is Ahab and Jezebel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. So he leaves the kingdom of the north, and so he can escape, you know, the power and authority of Ahab and Jezebel. And and even when he goes to Judah, he, he's not on the border. He goes as far south within Judah as he can get into Beersheba. This would have taken certainly days to get there. When he gets there, he says he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. Even there, he's still, maybe his days of hiding in the wilderness before has, has just his mode of working. And he gets out of the city 
uh, where he can be found. He goes into the wilderness area, sits under a tree, and there he prays. What does he pray? It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He prays to die. So he's afraid Jezebel will kill him, but yet he asks God to take his life. It is enough. Lord, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what to do. He's spent. I can't take this anymore. All of the, maybe the pent-up fear from the last few years hits him in a way, and he is in complete panic mode. And then this line I think is curious. For I am no better than my father's. Meaning the, the, he's not talking literal fathers, but the, the, the fathers of Israel. Um, he's thinking, I've messed this all up. I am a, a sinner, just like all who were before me. Isaiah would say, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's that same idea as, I, I'm no better than the people before me. I've screwed this up just as much as they have. That's his prayer. That's pretty honest. There's, that's, that's, that, that's no sugarcoating it, you know, with happy talk. Elijah is being honest with God, and he's just evoking his feelings. Um, it says, and then he fell asleep. He has nothing left. Contrast the height of his victory where the people were chanting, the Lord is God, right? And, and actually, if you translate Elijah's name, Elijah means the Lord is God. So they're chanting, Elijah, Elijah. Like that, that peak of victory to now he's fled on the run in the wilderness and sleeping under a tree. And, and there's logically, it doesn't make sense. Thing, things are on the upswing. Um, the, ser- the servant who zealously stood up for the Lord has nothing left to give. Have you ever experienced a major high, whether emotional or spiritual, followed by a complete plummeting into despondency and despair? It doesn't make sense, and yet it does. I know I've had times I'll come back from a camp trip or a mission trip. Um, I will return from something where I felt closer to God than ever. And then it's like you let down and you got, I, I, I'm like, is God still alive? Like you just hit that high and the low. What I've learned is, is doubts, doubting God can be an intellectual question. There are times when intellectually we'll have doubts or may face things that we have to think through and, and rationally work out. And maybe there's, you know, you've read about those. But I think actually most of the time, doubt is actually an, a feeling that grips hold of our heart. That it's not completely rational. It's not an intellectual question. It's something we feel inside for, for various reasons. And, 
it's not just thinking it out. We, we, we need something to, to pull us out of that, those feelings of doubt. What I love about this is God is determined not to give up on a servant. Look, let's look at how God responds and works to restore Elijah. So Elijah had fallen and asleep under this broom tree. So it says, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And, and he had a, a cake and, you know, we'll, we'll go into that later, but it says, and he ate and drank and lay, lay down again. And he, so he, he, uh, he woke up, God gave him some food and drink and he fell right back asleep. But this whole time, an angel of the Lord, which is another way of saying God's presence was right there watching over him, protecting him, making sure that he would be okay. It's like God is sitting by his bedside in the hospital. God himself, the Lord himself, is sitting with him as he's going through this, this dark time. And what does he give him? Sleep. What Elijah seemed to need more than anything else was rest. God does not rebuke Elijah for his feelings. He does not condemn Elijah for his doubts. He does not berate Elijah for his weakness. He just sits with him. In Psalm 103, it talks about how as a, as a father has compassion on his children, so our father, the father, has compassion on us as human beings. It says, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are made of dust. God is compassionate. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. He has not unrealistic expectations for us. And yet he still loves us and has compassion on us. And God knows we need rest. In fact, God is so much knows he need, we need rest. He commands us to rest. In the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten, God commands his people to set aside one day a week for rest. Do we do that very well? Do we find ways to work when we're actually given the opportunity for rest? I think the modern day pace of life can grind at us. How many of the struggles that we face in our community, in our life, is because we, we're not getting enough physical and spiritual rest. And, and it could steal away our joy. It may be, if you're struggling with feelings of alienation from God, it may be you need time to rest. And can I suggest that this can, is not adding to our rest? And I, I would have to add my home TV and Netflix and all those. There, there are times we need to just tune out and enjoy entertainment, and that, that's not wrong. But those don't help renew our energy. They don't bring us back into that, that rest that we need. Um, sometimes it's our entertainments and distractions that actually might fuel the depression and despondency that we feel.
God desires rest for us. Will we let him lead us to that? So that's the first thing he gives him. He gives him sleep. The second thing God gives him is bread, literal bread. Elijah wakes up and, and this angel is cooking bread over the fire. And um, he hears a voice. He wakes up long enough to eat and drink. He goes back to sleep. The second time, Elijah sees the angel of the Lord. And that, that's Yahweh, the Lord taking human form. It's thought of as the pre-incarnate Jesus there with Elijah. Um, he gives him literal bread. And what I believe is this is a, a sense of inner renewal. Bread is a picture in the Bible of the inner renewal that we need from inside. Next Sunday is our day we share the Lord's Supper. We eat literal bread, but we know it, it means so much more than that. It's remembering what the Lord has done for us through, his, through, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Americans, we have more than enough bread, but there's a food we need that this world cannot supply, and, and we need it not just once a year. We need it often, just like as human beings, we need the spiritual renewal that comes from regular worship. I am so thankful that you are all here this morning, even as we're spread out in the parking lot. I love worshiping outdoors. I'm so glad we could do this for a time. I love worship indoors for that matter. We have a great facility, but there's something about setting aside that time where we, we take in bread from God and he renews our spirit. So sometimes we need rest and sometimes we need to gather with God's people. One of Elijah's issues is he was alone. He felt it. We'll talk about that yet, but we, we, none of us are meant to follow Jesus alone. It's vital not just that we worship on our own. It is vital we come together as his people. That's the bread he will give us. And then the third thing he gives him is, is a bit of a surprise. He gives him a 40-day journey. God sends him down to... Um, sends him down to Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, that place that Yahweh, the Lord, had revealed um, the, the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. And so he sends him on this 40 days of a nights, and it says um, the strength of the food, got, God got him there. So there's a question whether, you know, that meal that God gave him over the fire, that that happened to be enough magically to feed him for 40 days and 40 nights, or if God continued to provide in some way that, 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 that during that journey. Um, but here's what I think is going on. Elijah does not really need to be on Mount Sinai to actually have a conversation with God. God is more than capable of revealing himself right where he's at. But you know what Elijah needs? He needs a journey. He needs time away, time out of the battle. Elijah had been in this intense battle for, for three years. He needs time to reflect and get perspective, to get away from the day-to-day -day concerns, struggles, battles of life. And this time, I think even on this, this journey, as, as Elijah began walking, Towards And again, on your map, you'll see that Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai is a long way away. It's way to the south. Um, 
that Elijah would be able to think and pray, to ponder, to, to review what had happened, to review his life. Do you ever get time away with God? Maybe a retreat or spiritual opportunity to, to see things differently. That, that day-to-day life, I think there's times we need to get away from from the busyness of this world. And I'm not talking about a vacation where you, you know, you go someplace fun or, you know, I hear some people are going to Disney world even, but, uh, you know, those are great. I'm not against those, but I'm talking about someplace where you're giving God extended time to speak into your life. I was just with the group of people. Um, they're actually on a retreat right now down in Southern couple hours South in New York. And they are getting away as a small church to, to be with God in, in nature, in camp. What if we sought opportunities to do that? To get new perspective again. And to give God time to, to lead us. Is it possible we would see ourselves and our life more clearly in light of God if we gave God that opportunity? And then when he gets there, they have a conversation. And so God does one more thing for a servant. And I, and I love this. He came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah and God are having a conversation. And in verse 10, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. Jealous and zealous are the same word. I think zealous fits it better. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take away my life. Note how it starts. God asks a question. What are you doing here? Elijah, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. What are you looking for? What do you need? In other words, God listens. Before he gives Elijah answers to things, God takes time to listen. Do you know we have a Father in heaven who delights when his people bring to him their struggles, their worries, their fears? We, we can go to God and, and pour forth, and we're not just talking to the air. Our God listens. He hears. Now, he's not a, like a magic button thing, you know, you put in your quarter and you get your answer to your prayer. It's not, it's not like that. But he listens and he hears. And in this prayer, Elijah lays it all out. He is given his all. He's been zealous for the Lord, but he's out of strength. No, there's three things. He, he, first of all, he feels like a failure, right? The people have rejected God. It, it was his mission to keep the people um, faithful to the Lord, and he has failed. Even though it seems like that victory on Mount Carmel, I think Elijah foresees that may be just temporary. He feels like a failure. The second one is he feels very alone. I am the only one left. Now, he's not alone. There are others who've stayed faithful to the Lord. In fact, Elijah was told that once, but he still feels alone. We can feel alone in our, our walk with Christ. We need others in our lives close enough 
And then the last thing is he feels afraid. You ever, can you relate to that? Feeling like a failure, feeling alone, feeling terrified of what life holds. And God listens. God does not correct or rebuke, nor does God give some trite promise. Oh, it's all going to be okay. In fact, God gives him something greater. God will give his servant an experience of his own presence. We'll talk more about that next week, how that plays out. But just know that, that Elijah will experience God's presence in a way that he'll never forget. What I want us to know is that the darkest and low, lowest moments of our lives, our Lord and Savior is there. He's at our bedside. I love Matthew 28. Do you know what the final words Jesus says to his disciples? He gives the command, you know, go and take this, the good news, the message to all nations, baptize, teach, disciple. But he ends with the simple phrase, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He will be with us in good times and in difficult times. On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, I will bless your name. God will be with us in those moments. I don't know how well I could have understood this, this passage today as a young man. Right? I, I had kind of the idea that if you're just strong enough, you know, if your faith is there, you can ride through any, you know, time of, of, of challenge. Just, you know, just believe, just, just hold on. Um, I mean, I'd face discouragement, you know, I just needed to pray more or I need to get in the word more. Um, you know, but then I had a season in my life that God led me through. And I even hesitate to share it because it's very personal. But I'm going to because I know others of you have had these experiences. And you need to know it's okay. I had a season of, of extended depression, anxiety, obsessive think thoughts, couldn't sleep, had trouble functioning. Um, it was beyond any discouragement that I've had in the past. Um, I knew it was real because I actually lost my appetite. When I'm, when I'm normal times of discouragement, I eat more, you know, I'd come home, I'd be wiped out. I'll eat a whole pizza. No big deal. Um, I actually didn't want to eat anything that actually freaked me out because I'm like that. This is something, something's going on and no amount of prayer was fixing it. I, I had no desire to pray. Um, even exercise, which is my other means of trying to deal with normal stress and anxiety. I, I couldn't do it. The, the thoughts would race and it just made, it actually made it worse. And it's not that I doubted God and even God's love. I just couldn't conceive of anything getting better. I thought about leaving ministry. Um, for the first time, I really thought about, should I be a pastor? 
Um, and all I can say, well, a few things. Well, first I'll say this. God held on to me even when I did not have the strength to, to, to walk with him. Just like here in Elijah, God did not abandon his servant. God held on to me. I told a few friends, close Christian friends. They prayed with me. They prayed for me. They also helped me in some practical ways. They, they encouraged me to tell my doctor. And I did. And for a, to- for a time I was on medicine. And at first that made it worse, but eventually it did help. Um, and there was no magic moment when it all got better. But it did get better. Slowly but surely, it got better. The scriptures say that, that grief, mourning lasts for a little while, but joy comes in the morning. That is true. Sometimes the night lasts long. But joy comes in the morning. So I share this. Maybe you've had similar experiences. Maybe right now you've wondered some of the same things. Know that God can hold on to you even when we cannot hold on to him. Have you ever experienced the abiding presence of the Lord in the midst of the dark time in your life? In the moment, you can't feel him. But he's still there. One of the things that helps me is C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters that I had read and, and I, I think explains this a bit. But to, to give you this quote, I put the quote on your insert because I know it's impossible to follow a long quote. So I'm going to read a long quote, but I got to explain it because in C.S. Lewis, it's his book called Screwtape Letters. And if I could get you all to read one book, if you've never read it, I would tell you to read Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis has so much insight and wisdom into the human heart and how we deal with God. And he wrote a book that considers all that from a, a very interesting perspective. He, he considers it from the other side. And so Screwtape is a demon, a, one of Satan's demons, who is writing to a junior demon called Wormwood about how to bring a patient, which is a person, a man, into their domain, right? It's how to tempt them away from God and into damnation. And so everything that Screwtape writes is flipped over because he's writing, when he says the, the enemy, he means God. And when he says our father, he means Satan. Because that's who he's serving. And so what C.S. Lewis is doing in this book overall is thinking about some spiritual truths by considering how they look from the other side. And I think it helps gain insights into what, 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 what is it that we go through as we try to walk with Jesus throughout life. And in the midst of this, he describes what he calls the law of undulation. And it, it's the idea that things go up and down in our lives. And... And so he says, humans are amphibians. This is screw tape talking. Remember, he's a demon. It says, humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. So we, we have trouble realizing that we're unique. 
Like there's animals and animals, you know, are, are good and they, they have a thing, but, but we're not animals. I mean, we are. Um, and then there's angels. Angels are pure spirit, right? We're both. We, we have physical human bodies. And so we are subject to the, the animal parts of us, the, the, the normal psycho, psychological, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and, but we also have a spiritual dimension that we can't even see, but, and so in that sense, we're like angels. So he says, humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. And then Screwtape gives an aside, the enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. In other words, he's saying Satan, because of God creating human beings in his image, that's what drew, drove Satan to, to reject God. Well, there's more to the story. Remember, Screwtape's a demon. He doesn't always tell the truth. So that's... But that's the aside. So here, here's then the law as it replies to the fact that we're half human or half, half animal, half spirit. It says, as spirits, they belong to the eternal world. But as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, which means going up and down. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient are, is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make a good use of it. What he's saying is our feelings, our feelings of closeness to God, um, will go up and down by nature. It doesn't mean we actually are further from God, even when we have that dryness and dullness, that numbness and poverty. It is a natural phenomenon that does not mean God has abandoned us or even that we have abandoned God. It means we will experience these. And actually by going through these and staying rooted into God, our faith actually grows through them in the end. It is how God leads us not just children of God, but sons and daughters of God, strong in faith. Even when we can't feel his presence, we know he's there because he's taught us that. We were talking in uh, our Sunday school on Hosea's, why, why did God allow um, Israel to go so far from him so many times? So it's kind of the same topic. It's the, the study on Hosea. And I think that God is leading us to trust him in a deeper level. So he allows us to face these difficulties. And the challenge is we need to hold on to him. So how do we hold on to him in those times? What I would suggest, you need to sink some spiritual truths into your mind. They need to be grooved like, like root, like canals. Like the, they're so grooved into our mind that even when we don't feel God, we know they're true. Even when everything in our mind says, I don't know, we know they're true because they've been, been grooved into us. And I'm going to offer you four that I think are key. 
um, based out of specific scriptures. And the first one is this, there in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Romans 8.1 declares that, that our sins have been dealt with. That Jesus went to the cross to take away the guilt and, and judgment of our sin upon us. And even when we struggle and limp, even when our brokenness exerts itself, our sins have been dealt with. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are under his, his grace and mercy. Jesus was condemned on our behalf, so we need not fear that. And in those moments when everything is dark and, and, and God feels distance, we can start to doubt that. I want that truth to be sunk into your mind. Give no opportunity for, eight, for, for the enemy, Satan, to bring back up to you your guilt for sin. The second truth, also affirmed in Romans 8, Romans 8, 16, we are sons and daughters of God. It says in Romans 8, 16, that God's spirit testifies with our spirit. He declares it even within us. Even when we can't feel it within us, he still declares that we are sons and daughters of God because we've put our faith in his son, we've received Jesus, and he speaks over us, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. That is true when we are walking in light and walking strong in him. It is true when we stumble and struggle. I, uh, like I said, I went camping with a few people this week, and sometimes, you know, your your children can frustrate you. And uh, and I was just thinking, like, so hypothetically imagine a son who vomits in a tent and doesn't tell you, and you go in when it's really dark. This is hypothetical. I'm not saying this happened. And then you stick your hand in it before you realize what it is. And um, so it's possible that you're, you know, you may <laughs> be frustrated with such a child. And yet your love for them does not go away. And you know, you, you have compassion on them. For you know that, that, that they are your, your, your son or daughter. Um, that's a truth we need to sink in. A third truth. He will finish what he started in me. I love Philippians 4, 4 1, 1, 6. Let me read the, the full verse. It says, I am sure of this. Paul is writing. says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he started a work in you because you've trusted in him, at some point in your life you said, Jesus, I want to give you my life. It, he begins a work in you then that he will bring to completion. Even if along the way we don't always look that strong in our faith, he will bring it to completion. One day he will finish what he started in you. Know it. Trust in it. He will not abandon the project. He will not abandon us. And then the last truth I want you to sink into your mind I am saved not by my own strength, but by his grace. We're not strong enough. If it were based on our strength, our ability to live for Jesus and walk with him perfectly, 
of standing strong for him in a dark world, none of us would make it. We would all fall short. But instead, our salvation is built on this truth that, so in verse 5, Ephesians 2, 5, it says, God being rich in mercy, but uh, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in transgressions and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I have a picture of this. It comes from a speaker I heard once. Um, and I tried to remember where I heard him, and I realized it was actually in New York. It was at a, a, a music conference, a Christian festival, at Darien Lake, New York. And uh, his name was Dave Reaver. And so this was a long time ago. He was talking about of his experiences in Vietnam. So I remember hearing him probably 30 years ago. He was talking about stuff that happened 20 years before that. But while on a, he was assigned to a riverboat patrol, and they, they got in a firefight. And D Dave was a believer. Um, he got in a firefight. He pulled out a phosphorus grenade which was meant to burn away the, the, the jungle. So it burns really hot, and it would burn away the jungle so that they could, you know, shoot at the people who were shooting at them. Well, before he could throw it, a, a bullet hit his hand, and the grenade ended up exploding near, his, near him and onto his face. And the phosphorus that was meant to burn away the foliage was got into his face, and he, he fell from the boat into the river that they were, you know, going on. And it really should have been the end, right? But his buddies pulled him out, bandaged him up as best they could, tried to save his life. And the, even then, his face was burned, his body was burned. When they pulled him out of the river, he was still on fire from this grenade, they managed to, to put that out. And by the time they got him to uh, the surgeon, it says when the, the surgeon actually tried to open him up again, the phosphorus hit, hit oxygen and it started, he started to catch on fire on the operating table. And, and it, it wiped out most of his face. Um, he spent 14 months undergoing surgeries, major surgeries, when I heard him speak 15 to 20 years later, he was still having various occasional surgeries. Um, he, he, he joked about it. He's like, oh, they're still, they're still real rebuilding my face. He, he pulled off an ear. He says, yeah, this is rubber, you know? So, um, but while he was in the, the ward and it was kind of a group, group ward, medical ward, there was a guy next to him, one of his, you know, army buddies who also had been burned, um, but not as bad as he was. And this guy was excited because his fiance was coming to visit. And he was looking forward to, to seeing her for the first time and she's seeing him. And um, when the, the man's fiance, this is Dave's friend next to him, when she walked in and she saw the, the burns, the face of this guy, she said, I'm not going to the rest of my life married through the ring on the bed and walked out. It devastated Dave. How will my 
young bride. He was married, but, but, you know, just before the war. Will she do the same thing? And so he went into a depression. Do I even want to ask her to do this? Everyone would be better off without me. I'm, I'm too far gone. There's no point. I have no hope, no future. So Dave, in his heart of heart, decided to end it all. Now he's in a bed. He doesn't have a lot of power, but he's hooked up to medicine, keeping him alive. And so he um, goes over one night after the nurses are gone, shuts off his IV and waits to die. He woke up the next morning really hungry. All he had done is turned off his nutrition. <laughs> and God speaks, and he, he, he repents. He says, all right, God, I will trust in you. And, and so, and he says, I, I won't do that again. And so now he's waiting for his bride to come in. And what will she do? The fateful day comes when she comes to visit and she comes in, she looks at her husband, Dave, and she goes right, right up to him and kisses him on the little bit of lips he still has left. And he's like, honey, how could you love me when I look like this? And she says, Dave, you were never that good looking anyways. And she spends the next 40-some years together with him. That is a picture of God's grace. We may not even see it, but we were never that good-looking anyways. <laughs> but God chooses to, to hold on to us, to affirm his love for us, to stay committed to us, even when we, we fall short. So I want you to know that my friends know God's grace has operated and one day we will get to heaven and I doubt if we're going to trumpet how great we were in serving the Lord instead we will all echo I can't believe he saved someone like me his grace is so much greater than my sin let me pray Lord Jesus I know that you love us you love us in the days when we are walking with you and living for you and shining for you as you desire us to be. You want to draw us to become sons and daughters and disciples who, who bear forth your good news and, and serve you with strong hearts. But Lord, I'm so thankful that when we fall short and limp along, you're still there. I thank you for your grace upon me the grace by which I am saved. We offer you this, this time in Jesus' name. Amen.